We thank you um, for all that you teach us in your word, Lord, and just how you reveal yourself and how you desire for us to know you in ways that we would not have known you if we do not open your word, if we do not understand what your word says about you and what you desire for our life, Lord. And so, Father, we praise you and we thank you. I thank you for the ladies, um, for them going into their discussion groups and the way that you're able to reveal truth to them and they're able to minister to one another as they study your word. And so, Lord, we just ask, Father, as we sit here and look at this lesson, Lord, that you would continue to reveal and to minister to us what your word says about your wrath, Lord. And we are just so grateful, Lord, that we are not under your wrath at this time. So we lift this time to you, Lord, and we ask that your Holy Spirit would have free access and that your Holy Spirit would teach with your authority. In Jesus' name, amen. Wrath of God, did you love that? (laughs) I was um, actually pretty excited to be able to teach this lesson. I had never studied the wrath of God. was well aware of the wrath of God, but I had never... um, studied it. So we're going to attempt to look at God's biblical understanding of what the wrath of God is. And wrath is defined as the emotional response to perceived wrong and injustice, often translated as anger, indignation, vexation, or irritation. Both both humans and God express wrath, but there is a vast difference between the wrath of God and the wrath of man. God's wrath is not uncontrollable rage, vindictive bitterness, or losing one's temper. But rather, we're told in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 15, about the wrath of God. But you, uh, but you are God, ready to pardon, gracious, merciful, slow to anger, and abundant in kindness. And this is what I've experienced. And if you're born again, this is what you've experienced. In Psalms 103, verse 8, it says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abundant in mercy. Human wrath, on the other hand, is warned against. In Ephesians 4, verse 20, says it says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down upon your wrath. And all of us know what's that li- what, what that is like, to let the sun go down upon our wrath. Some of you have been in arguments with different individuals, some of us with our husbands. You go to bed mad and you wake up even madder. And you understand why God says, don't let the sun go down upon your wrath. Uh, contrary to God, today people live with uncontrolled rage and anger. All you have to do is watch some of the shows on TV, um, 48 Hours, um, just different programs, and you just see man's wrath. is He's violent. He's cruel. Um, he's mean. Uh, and I think about some of the things that we get agitated about um, and worked up about, um, not to mention outright angry. Uh, and I found myself um, some time ago um, uh, with a certain individual. Every time I came around that individual, I was a little agitated. And just every time I get a little agitated. I know you guys don't know what that's like. but um, And I said, Lord, you know, I just hate having this agitation about this person. And God just said, Trudy, it's a heart problem. Out of the abundance of the heart. And God says, you need to work on your heart. You've got a heart problem. And uh, so he, he ministered to me that that was uh, my problem. And in uh, Proverbs 4, verse 23, it says, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. Whether it's a problem within, within yourself or it deals with somebody who has deliberately hurt us. And, and 
As long as we live in this world, there are going to be people that deliberately hurt us or unintentionally hurt us. Colossians 3, verses 8 through 10 says, But now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Our behavior is to be above reproach. As a child of God, we're really without excuse. We blow it every day. But we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And in Luke 6, verses 27 through 28, it says, But I say to you, uh, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who spitefully use you. This is what our attitude is to be. And you know, it's interesting. God's not asking us to do anything that he hasn't done already. So he gives us the means and the how. And I love Peter because I have given you all things that pertain to life and godliness. There's not anything that we go through that God doesn't equip us to be able to deal with that situation. For the Christian, anger and wrath are inconsistent with our new nature, which is the nature of Jesus Christ himself. In Romans 12, verse 19, it says, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And I was looking at, but rather give place to wrath. What? But as I looked up that, that phrase, to give place, it means to leave it for God to come in and execute wrath or vengeance on the enemy. You know what? You've got a problem with somebody. You better pray for that person. I always am fearful for the person who is coming against God's people because God says whoever touches you touches the apple of his eye. So, you know, it's, it's really best not to mess with God's people. It's really, it's, it really is best not to. Uh, God alone is able to avenge because his vengeance is perfect. It's holy. Whereas man's wrath is sinful. The wrath of man is always somehow um, comprised by the presence of of sin. Isn't that true? Haven't you found yourself when you're really angry and, and you blurt out some kind of behavior or something that comes out of your mouth? Is it not tainted with sin? It's, it's interwoven all through with sin. But God's wrath is not like that. Uh, it states in James 1, verses 19 and 20, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to, pe- slow to speak, and slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Did you, did you hear that? For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So you know what? Stay clear of it. You know, do what you got to do. Be obedient to God's word. When speaking of God's wrath, he does not have to be warned about his actions like man. His wrath is always holy. His wrath is always justified. To gain an understanding of God's wrath, we're going to look at it from four vantage points. I feel like Xavier. (laughs) First of all, God's wrath is just or it's righteous. Second, God's wrath is to be feared. Third, God's wrath is in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. And then fourth, God's wrath is justified in Christ. And that's the last part that I absolutely love, that his wrath is justified in Christ. So let's begin with first, God's wrath is just or it's righteous. In order to understand 
What the scriptures reveal concerning the wrath of God is necessary to consider his character, which I love because we've been studying his attributes all year and we'll consider, we'll con, con, uh, continue to study, uh, his attributes, which gives us such a greater and a deeper understanding of who he is. The righteousness of God is an essential revelation of his character. The words righteous or justice in the English Bible represent the same Hebrew and Greek words in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. Jehovah is consistently represented in the Old Testament as the holy and the righteous God. His standards are absolute. His standards are consistent and his standard does not change. God has not changed from the Old Testament all the way to Revelation. His standard is absolute. It does not change. To be just or righteous is to have that character that leads one to always do that which is right. In Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 5 it says, uh, The Lord is righteous. He will do no unrighteousness. Every morning he brings his justice to light. He never fails. He always Always, you can count on it that he will do what is right, what is just. The righteousness or justice of God is that attribute that leads him always to do right. He's not like you and I. He's not temperamental. He doesn't wake up in a bad mood if he wakes up. Jeremiah 12 verse 1 says, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I plead with you. It doesn't matter what kind of attitude you come before him with whatever you're coming before him with. You may have... Whatever attitude, he is always going to be just. He is always going to be righteous. In Jeremiah Jeremiah 9.24, it says that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord, always. Jesus states about his Father in John 17, verse 25, O righteous Father. He is always right. He is always righteous. He is never unjust. Even when we don't understand his sovereignty, which Kathy marvelously, wonderfully shared about the sovereignty of God, there are things we don't understand, and we're never going to understand. But God is sovereign, and he is doing what is just and what is right in our lives. In Isaiah 55, verse 8, I think Kathy shared this. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts, says the Lord. We're not always going to understand, but we do understand that he is just. We do understand that he was right. When Abraham spoke with uh, the Lord concerning the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, listen to what Abraham said to God because he was concerned about God's righteousness. Abraham said in Genesis 18.25, Far be it from you to do such a thing as to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you, says I shall not the judge of the whole earth do what's right. God was concerned. I mean, Abraham was concerned when God was going to destroy Sodom. and Gomorrah. God forbid that you would not do what's right. And isn't that why God led Lot and his family out? Because he could not destroy the righteous with the wicked. Because he is a righteous God. He led them personally. I was just talking with Melissa. He literally took them by the hand. Go. You've got to go. I cannot destroy Sodom and Gomorrah until you're gone. Because he is a righteous and he is a just God. In a certain sense, these attributes of righteousness and justice are but the manifestation of God's holiness. Holiness has to do more particularly with the character of God in itself. 
while in righteousness and justice, that character is expressed in the dealings of God with men. One commentator stated, righteousness is holiness in action. I like that definition. Righteousness is holiness in action. Um, William Evans states in his commentary, The Great Doctrines of the Bible, first, There is the imposing of righteousness, laws and demands, which may be called legislative holiness and may be known as the righteousness of God. Second, there is the executing of penalties attached to those laws, which may be called judicial holiness. And then third, there is the sense in which the attributes of the righteousness and justice of God may be regarded as the actual carrying out of the holy nature of God in the government of the world. So that in the righteousness of God, we have his love of holiness. And in the justice of God, his hatred towards sin. Righteousness is conformity to a right standard. It is right conducts in relation to others. Pharaoh acknowledged the perfect justice of God in punishing him for his sin and for his rebellion. In Exodus um, chapter 9, verses 23 through 27, we have the account of the plague of the... Remember when the hail came? That was one of the, the uh, plagues. Pharaoh states in uh, concerning this event in verse 27, uh, Pharaoh uh, said, and he said, Sin for Moses. And Aaron, and unto them he said, I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous, and I and my people are wicked. He recognized God's righteousness. He recognized his wickedness. Pharaoh understood this. A consequence of his wrath is vengeance, punishment, and death. God's wrath is in perfect accord with his justice. It is a divine wrath. It isn't like anything that you and I know. God's wrath is in proportion to human sinfulness. Paul states in Romans 2, verse 5, But because of your stubbornness and your unrepented heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of wrath, um, when his righteous judgment shall be revealed. God doesn't want to pour his wrath upon man, but because of man's stubbornness and man's hard heart. In Proverbs 24, verse 12, it says, If you say, surely we did not know this, does not he weigh the hearts and consider it? He who keeps your soul, does he not know it? And will he not render to each man according to his deeds? He's not going to pour out his wrath more on you. Um, It's all according to your deeds. God is angry in a holy way, in a perfect way. J.I. Packer states, God's wrath in the, in the Bible is never a capricious, self-indulgent, uh, self-indulgent uh, irritable, moral, uh, ignorant thing that the human anger so often is. It is a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. This is what God is talking about. God's wrath against sin and disobedience is perfectly justified because his plan for mankind is holy and perfect, just as God himself is holy and perfect. In Psalms 28, verse 4, it says, Give them according to their deeds and according to the wickedness of their endeavors. Give them according to the work of their hands. Render to them what they deserve. There are situations that we find ourselves in, and many times we're blaming God. God, am I, am I being judged for this situation? But in reality, it's called the, the law of sowing and reaping. We make choices. 
And sometimes God has nothing to do with those choices. It's all on us. It's a matter of you're sowing to what, uh, you're reaping to what you've sown. In Galatians 6, verse 8, it says, For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. So there are times we blame God, and God's not to blame. It's you yourselves. Um, but even when we are being chastened by God, it's because he's a holy God. And he, what he does, he does perfectly. Um, and it's, it's interesting, God, as he deals with man, it's not like our court system. You don't plea bargain. It's not a matter of temporary insanity or I come from a dysfunctional family. Um, it's a matter of God beholding and watching. He is aware. See, he sees everything. God says everything's naked and open. We can hide things from one another, from different people, but we can't hide from God. No sinner can stand before God and say, I don't deserve this punishment. God judges not as judges today. He doesn't allow evidence sent before him by others. And sometimes when you watch some of these court cases, they'll put in certain evidence, but it's tainted. God himself sees the evidence for himself. It's not because some lawyer has given it to him. It's because he sees it himself. You'll remember when Moses approached the burning bush, God acknowledged in Exodus 3, verse 7, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. God personally saw. God personally knew what was going on. Um, in Hebrews 4.13, it says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We can't hide from God. We can hide certain things from anybody and everybody else, but not from God. Wrath is God's natural response to sin in the universe. He cannot overlook it. He cannot wink at it. And he cannot pretend it's not there. I love the way this one pastor put it. He said, Wrath is what happens when justice meets rebellion. Wrath is what happens when justice meets unrighteousness. And wrath is what happens when perfect good meets pure evil. Second, God's wrath is to be feared. In Psalms 90, verse 11, who knows the power of your anger? For as the fear of you, so is your wrath. Jesus said in Luke 12, verse 5, I will show you whom you should fear. Then fear him after he has killed and has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Who's he talking about? He's talking about himself. You better fear me. Um, many years ago, there was a bumper sticker that said, N-O, fear. And then next to it said, K-N-O-W, fear. So there's people that have absolutely no fear. And there are people that recognize you, ha- you need to have a healthy fear. And those people that have no fear, I, I, I watch sometimes my grandson do things. And I'm going, he has no fear. Oh, my gosh. And there are the, us that are older and know better. We, we fear. Oh, I'm not doing that. And it's the same way spiritually. There are some people that have no fear of God. And then there are many of us who have a healthy fear of God. Today, too many people live without a fear of God. I was talking to a friend a few weeks ago, and she was talking to some family members, and she says, oh, God's, God's, not, God's not a God of wrath. He's not going to do this. He's not going to, you know, God is love, and he's this, and he's that. And I remember I had just finished reading the Minor Prophets, and I had just finished reading Revelation. So, well, um, 
That's not really true. You always know the people that don't read their Bible. You know, they, 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 they speak out this so-called wisdom, but they have no clue of what they're talking about. And I just thought, ooh, you know, I, I, I fear for these people that have no fear. God's wrath is to be feared. Isaiah 13, verse 11, it says, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will halt the arrogance of the proud and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. This is God speaking. We fear because he has all power and can inflict what punishment he pleases. We're told in Psalms 135, verse 6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and all the deep places. We fear because he is decisively just and will inflict punishments which ought to be inflicted. Romans 2 verse 5 says, But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. We fear because we're told in Romans 3 verse 23, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We fear because we are justly condemned sinners apart from Christ. We fear because all must appear before him. In Romans 14, verse 10, it says, For we all shall stand before him in the judgment seat before Christ. We fear because all we have to do is look to God's word to see that he does keep his promises. Look through the, look through the old and the new. He is a man of his word. Numbers uh, 23, verse 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie. He doesn't call. He's not calling your bluff. He says what he means. You can trust his word. You can take it to the bank. We fear because God promises eternal punishment apart from Christ. In Matthew 25, verse 46, it states, and these will go away into everlasting punishment. I don't want that. You ever read the story of the rich man and, and Lazarus? Please send Father Abraham to dip his finger in water and put it on my tongue. It is so hot here. We fear, and we should have a healthy fear. Um, how crucial it is, then, that we should embrace his offer of salvation uh, so that we don't fall into his wrath. Apart from Christ, there's no being justified, but we are lost in our sins. But through faith in the atoning grace of Jesus, we are justified by faith. When I think of what awaits the person who continually rebels against God, I just, oh, it's, it's very sad. We've all shared with different people that refuse and refuse. And I'll never forget, it was a while back ago, there was someone who I absolutely loved. And that person went into eternity without Christ. And I remember crying and crying and crying. And I remember this person came up to me who had fallen away from God. And I remember her saying, Trudy, you can't think like that. But you know what? When you know what God's word says, there's no other way you can think. When God clearly states, and and sometimes, how many times have we been to funerals? where they're non-believers, and you know it. And that pastor's up there, and he's sharing this and that, and we're going to see him again. And you're just going, oh, no, we're not. We're not. We're not going to see. Especially when you know they were blatant sinners. Especially when you know it. I never want to give false hope. Never. Never. 
It clearly says in John 3, verse 36, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. It is amazing how arrogant man is towards God. Yet we read in Romans 14, verse 11, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is God. I understand the non-believer's attitude, uh, but I do not believe the believer's attitude many times. I have watched countless believers who walk with no fear of God. And you see it in their lifestyle. And you just go, oh my gosh. Because they walk and they get further and further and further away. And we all know what happens to those people. They begin to put down the Bible. They begin to stay away from church. They begin to justify all their actions. And they do. You see it all the time. We're told in Deuteronomy 6, verse 24, about having a fear of God. He says, And the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God, for our good always, that we might pre- that he might preserve us alive as, as it is this day. In Psalms 103, verse 17, it says, But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness... Uh, to children's children, too many believers have lost the fear of God and they are becoming complacent. They're compromising God's principles. But more than that, you don't even see a difference between them and the world. God says we are to be set apart. God says in First Peter 2 verse 9, but you are a chosen generation. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who have called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's what we're called to. First Peter chapter 1 verse, 16, verse 16 says, Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. I'm not to be like the world. He says, You are a peculiar treasure unto me. That doesn't mean you're some weirdo. But you draw close to God. You and I know what it's like to be around godly people. I know that. I, I love to be around godly people. I love to hear what God... That's what I love about your discussion groups. I love that you can get together and you can share the word of God and God can minister to you in ways that... Wow, I never thought about that scripture that way. I love it. I love it when I can fellowship and we can share the word of God and we can share different um, scriptures that God has spoke volumes to us. That's what God wants us to do. For the believer, our fear is a reverent fear. It's a fear that we don't want to grieve him. I'll never forget years ago, probably about 25 years ago, um, we had been invited to um, these new believers' house, and they were watching this program. And I'm sitting there watching this program, and I know I should not be watching this program. And I'm very uncomfortable. And I'm sitting there, and the Holy Spirit is saying, Trudy, get up, get up, get up, get up. You don't need to see this. And it wasn't so much... It was a lot of violence. It was just too much violence for me. And I, I can't handle that kind of stuff. And the Lord's saying, get up. And I'm not getting up because oh, I'm going to offend these people. They're going to think I'm self-righteous. There's just, you know. And so I let the fear of man hinder me from getting up. And I'll tell you what. I felt, I knew I had grieved the Holy Spirit. I knew that I knew. And I just said, Lord, I'm so sorry. Lord, please forgive me. You know, it's, and it's lessons like that that you learn. And you never want to hurt him like that before, ever again, ever again. And that's the kind of fear. It's a reverent fear. I love him. He has done so much for me. How can I ever thank him for all that he's done? You know, my parents, I love my parents. 
And as I became a teenager, you know, you start getting a little crazy. You start doing things you shouldn't be doing. And I remember thinking there are certain things I'm not going to do. First of all, they'll kill me. Second of all, I don't want to hurt them. I don't want to hurt my parents this way. And you know, it's that same kind of attitude towards God. I love him. I don't want to hurt him. But there is that reverence fear that the believer is to have. Um, Psalms 19 verse 9 says, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. It's not, you know, I'm so afraid of him. It's not. It's clean. It's enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. In Proverbs 1 verse 7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Many of us experience a healthy fear. It's a good thing. I think we have to have the fear of the Lord because I see way too many people that don't have the fear of the Lord. Third, God's wrath is consistent in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. How many times? Guilty. God is a God of wrath in the Old Testament, but he's a God of love in the New Testament. I'm one of those people that said, all this stuff, never read the Bible clear through. How, do I, how, can, I make that, how can I make that statement? Well, we find a great number of fearful descriptions of the wrath of God in both the Old and New Testament. Looking at the Old Testament first, the wrath of God has been revealed throughout the history of humanity. It was shown when Adam was warned he would die if he disbelieved and disobeyed God in Genesis 3 verse 17. Also, when God stated that Satan's head would be crushed in Genesis 3:15. God demonstrated the execution of his wrath when he drove Adam and Eve from paradise in Genesis 3, verses 24 and 25. God revealed his displeasure when placing a curse on Cain, and he was banished uh, in Genesis 4, verse 11. God demonstrated his wrath through the flood in Genesis 6 and 8. God's wrath was visibly established by the plagues of Egypt and the destruction of Pharaoh and all his army. God's wrath is revealed against Israel, uh, with whom he had a covenant with when they worshiped that golden calf. God was very displeased. God's wrath is seen repeatedly towards Israel because God's people ignored and rejected his love, his will, and their life with God-given blessings. They were, they were exiled from their own country because they refused to listen to God. So God's wrath is seen in the Old Testament. God's wrath is seen also in the New Testament. In Romans 1, verse 18, it says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And you know, it's not a matter of having a form of godliness. We all know people who have that form of godliness, but they are so far removed from God. Um, Listen to John the Baptist words to the religious people in Matthew uh, chapter 3 verse 7 but when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to baptize he said to them brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come listen to Jesus words to some of the religious leaders in Matthew 23 verse 27 woe to you scribes Pharisees hypocrites For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but inward are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness. God's wrath is upon those who refuse to believe in God, uh, to to refuse to believe in and accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. We learn in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29, it says, Oh, 
How much worse punishment do you suppose will be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot and counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sacrificed a common thing and it insulted the scriptures of grace? What do we learn in Hebrews when it says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God? All were under the wrath of God in Ephesians 2, verse 3, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath. God's wrath is seen through the Old and through the New Testament, all the way through. Fourth, God's wrath is satisfied in Christ. In spite of man's disobedience and rebellion against God, he states in Ezekiel 33, verse 11, As I live, saith the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? Um, We need to understand. And Xavier brought it out Sunday morning and Sunday night. From the very first sin that took place in the garden, the Lord revealed in Genesis 3, verses 14 and 15. Listen to these verses. So the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, because he tempted Eve and she partook of the apple. He says, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle and more than the beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. This speaks of a continual conflict between good and evil and between your seed and her seed. This speaks of Christ. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This speaks of Satan's destruction. So we see in these three stages, the enmity, the conflict and the victory. God provided a way to gain favor, repentance, which turns God's wrath away from the sinner. We're told in, and every one of you know this, this verse in John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his world, did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. This began in Genesis. All the way in Genesis, God said this would take place. That's how much God loves us. That's how much he wants to turn his wrath from us. God in his mercy sent his son to be the propitiation for um, man. In 1 John 2, verse 2, it says, And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. The word propitiation means God's wrath has been appeased for all who trust in Jesus Christ. Do you remember when Jesus hung on the cross and one of the last words that he uttered uh, in Matthew 15, verse 34, it says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? At that moment, the sins of the world were being transferred from humanity to his son. He took on all the sins of the world. Um, our Lord's greatest suffering came because he was the object of, of the Father's wrath. In reality, it was mercy triumphing over judgment. Because Jesus died for us, God's wrath was averted. All that is required on our part is to believe upon the Son who took our place and died for us. The one who believes in the Son will not suffer God's wrath for his sins because Jesus took all of our sins upon him on that tree when he died. 
Uh, Jesus did for us what we could never do for ourselves. In Romans 5, verses 6 and 8 through 11, it says, For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. But God demonstrated his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his sin, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Because of God's love, because of God's love, he sent his son. For the uh, wrath of God is a fearful and a terrifying thing. Only those who have been covered in the blood of Jesus Christ, as it was shed on the cross, can be assured that God's wrath is averted from us. In Romans 3, verses 24 through 26, it says, Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The believer does not fear the wrath of God, but experiences the peace that passes all understanding. We have peace with God through his son and now experience peace with God. In Romans 5, verse 1, it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Not wrath, but peace. God provided a way to gain divine favor, repentance, which turns God's wrath away from the sinner. Those who do not believe in the Son, those who do not receive him as Savior, will be judged. It's inevitable. It's what God's word says. To reject that perfect plan is to reject God's love. It's to reject his mercy and favor and to incur his righteous wrath. The same Christ who died for all will um, execute divine wrath and vengeance to its fullest degree on Judgment Day in Revelations chapter 6, verses 16 through 17. So let me close with, God's wrath is just. God's wrath is to be feared. God's wrath is in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. But we are blessed because God's wrath is satisfied through Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come before you right now, Lord. And Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your abundant mercy that you have poured out upon every one of us. Every one of us deserve your wrath. But because of your son's love, because of what he did for us, we experience your peace. We experience your love. We experience your mercy. We experience so much. We have so much to be grateful for, Lord. Thank you for the way in which you reveal yourself to us through your word. Lord, I pray that we would walk in the fear and in reverence to you. For all that you've done for us, Lord. We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, ladies.